Our text this morning has been described by scholars as a very, very confusing one. There's a lot in it. Paul talks about speaking figuratively, and there's allegory in it, which is always confusing and messy to be able to determine what in the world is this all about. And we could spend a significant time wrestling with the various dimensions and phrases and categories. And I want to just summarize it in a, in, in, in a short uh, 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 bit of time because I want you to hear from Jamie Gibson who's with us this morning will speak to I hope flesh out this passage that we're talking about this morning so would you pray with me as we spend some time here this morning God we do thank you for your word we thank you actually even for the complexity of it that um, is what Paul said it's deep and rich and is um, is filled with things to study for our whole life long But Lord, I pray that you would bring to the surface now this morning that which matters most to us now and is relevant to our life as we walk out of this building this morning. So Lord, we pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. In Genesis chapter 18, we read that Sarah laughed. She did. She really laughed. And it wasn't because the angel told a joke. We have no record in history that angels were any good at telling jokes. And it's not that she was the first, actually in the chapter before that, her husband laughed first. But in chapter 18, we're hearing about Sarah who's laughing. And it's not because it was a joke, it was because the angel said something that in her mind would have been conceived as utterly absurd. The angel told an absurdity, not a joke. The angel said something that Sarah knew was inconceivable. Now, if she had taken out Guinness Book of World Records, she would have known that a woman actually conceived a child when she was 59 years old. That woman in England, what a surprise she had coming, right, at 59. But can you imagine the surprise at 90 years old to give birth to a child? And Sarah was this person who never had even a chance at giving birth at any point in her life. She was barren. She had never had children. She and her husband had conceived an idea. She said to Abraham, why don't you just go conceive a child by my slave woman, and then I can raise that person as mine. I mean, she tried everything. And then these angels come along, and they tell her that she's going to have a child. And of course she laughed. She, she denied it. She said, I didn't laugh. And, and they said, oh, oh, yes, you did laugh. But, but it's not as if the angel was scolding her for laughing because God provides something that caused her to laugh. I actually think God wants us to laugh. I think God wants to surprise us in such ways with things that we would say are utterly impossible so that we can experience the laughter of worship when God does something that natural events would never predict. That God actually wants us to laugh. And so we see in this story that Paul brings back to the people in Galatia in chapter 4 of the book of Galatians, a story of Sarah giving birth to Isaac and of Hagar giving birth to Ishmael. Isaac became the founder, one of the founders of the Jewish people in Ishmael of the Arab world. It's interesting, two nations in this came out of this one family. There was the Jewish lineage and there was the Arab world. They came out of the discord and the uncertainty and the trying to make it work out somehow. 
that took place in this family. And so Paul brings it back in an allegorical way, but there's something here that's really important for us to understand about God's passion for the world and what God is saying to us about what matters most. I want to just briefly notice a couple of things here. I want to notice the character of two births and the contrast to them. And then I want us to notice the character of two cities, actually the same city but two cities in the contrast to them. We see, first of all, the character of two births, and Paul is, is describing it right here. There's the birth of, uh, uh, that, that Hagar experiences and the one that Sarah experiences. There's a historical contrast between Abraham's two sons in terms of their social status and in terms of the manner of their birth. In regards to their social status, Ishmael's mother was Abraham's slave, and Isaac's mother was Abraham's wife and a free woman. In that culture, the social status of the mother determined the social status of the son. So Ishmael would be a slave, and Isaac would be a free man. And the Jews that are talking to the Galatians about the way life ought to be have bought into this whole sense that they're the ones that are free, and all of the other populations, all of the other nations of the world do not measure up. They're inferior and to be excluded. The Jews had contempt for people outside of a covenant relationship with God. And Paul shows up and he says, who has the covenant relationship with God? Paul is not only talking about this sense that what you're born into is who you become, but he's also talking about the wonder of the birth one so entirely different from the other. Ishmael was no surprise. It happens. Comes out of a family. Mom is pregnant, and she has, in this case, a son, and it's just pretty natural. But then there's the birth of Isaac. And Isaac comes from Sarah, the one who was barren, the one who was 90 years old, for one reason— because God promised that he would show up in an extraordinary way and create a group of people that were free. And so he does so. And all of those people become a part of a family where you can never, ever say, never again. A family where you never say, well, that's impossible. A family where one never says, Uh, That can never happen. They become children that live in a family that knows that there is a God that does unnatural things, supernatural things, born into that family. Children who never say never. But here's the twist in this story. He says that, you know, you you grew up in in, uh, Judaism, And uh, you describe yourself as free. But I want you to understand who's really free here. The one who is really free is not the person who holds to the law. They're actually enslaved. And in verses 24 and 25, he says to the Jewish law keepers, you're actually Hagar and Ishmael. I mean, imagine that. The very people that they had just nothing good to say about, that they had just a sense of absolute distaste or scorn for. And he says, that's who you are. You're the law keepers. You're the ones who are enslaved by it. 
your Hagar, you're in the lineage, figuratively speaking, of Ishmael. And those who are Galatian believers, they're actually the ones who are free. The Gentiles, the ones you, you have, will have nothing to do with, and the Arabs as well, they're actually the ones who are free. How can that happen? Because the Spirit of the loving God shows up, and in a natural world, somebody would say, that could never happen. And guess what? It does now that the Spirit of the living God has shown up. You see, there are two, there are two children here. There are two births. One is a birth that comes from genetics and biology, and a person can be enslaved. And the other is a birth that comes from above. What Paul was saying here is simple. Natural birth brings slavery. Supernatural birth brings freedom. We're born into the world and we become slaves of sin. It's just there from the get-go. This propensity, this bent towards selfishness and all that's a part of it. That's just the world that we're born into and we embody it ourselves. We are born naturally into the slavery that is true of anybody who stands outside of a relationship with the living God. But then there is this opportunity to be born supernaturally. People would say, that's impossible. That could never happen. And yet the Spirit of the living God shows up and we become free. So those of you who are parents and are just so excited you've got kids and all of the things that you want to build into their life, they've been born naturally. Our calling as parents is to introduce them to a birth that's supernatural. Because as good as it is to be naturally alive, it's critical that we experience the supernatural freedom that can only be found when Jesus Christ enters into our lives. Others may say, well, that could never happen in their life. And we're reminded over and over again that God does miraculous, extraordinary, supernatural things. Even the people you would never predict would come to faith in Christ are not outside of hope. So we see this teaching of Paul here of these two different sons and two different families. But there's another contrast in this text, and it's of two different cities. And there is Jerusalem that is referred to in verse, uh, in verse uh, 25, the present city of Jerusalem. And the present city of Jerusalem was that place where all of the scholars were engaged in study of all of the law that came from Mount Sinai. There's a whole lot more built into the text than that, but in general terms, that's what it's talking about. There's Mount Sinai. It was a place where the law was given, and now in the city of Jerusalem, everybody that's anybody in, uh, in academia is about figuring out what the law is. And Paul basically says, give them that city. Those, those people who want to abide by the law, they can have Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem that's available. And that new Jerusalem is actually available to anybody who is born from above. Jewish teachers, you can have the old city. You, it says in verse 26, to the Gentile believers, you are children of the Jerusalem from above, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again these comments about the new Jerusalem that is to come. 
You know, it's always this thing that's to be expected sometime in the future, in a, a future stage of, of, of life or heaven or whatever it might be. And it's something to come. But Paul does an interesting thing here. He doesn't refer to it as the place everyone wants to get after they die or after the Messiah comes back. He refers to it in the present tense and says, it's here now and you live in it. You belong to it. You are citizens of that city now. This place where anyone, Jew, Gentile, Arab, Persian, whatever, can experience the perfect rule of God in peace and harmony with him and with one another and all of the new creation. Jerusalem is no longer a provincial place, a nationally possessed city. It actually is there for everyone. Imagine the alarming news that struck Europe in the Middle Ages, that the Arabs had taken Jerusalem. And then you go back to Galatians chapter 4 and you discover that's what God has intended. The Arabs and every other person from any other nation of the world, the new Jerusalem was intended for them. Not, not the geographic place, the place that represents all of what God wants for all of his people that they would all inhabit Jerusalem. The gospel has been given to the whole world. Supernatural birth brings freedom and is now available to all. Mirsav Wolf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, talks about this. He says this, In Christ, all the families of the earth are blessed on equal terms by being brought into the promised single family of Abraham. Every family on earth. He goes on to say this, Christ, the seed of Abraham, is both the fulfillment of the genealogical promise to Abraham and the end of genealogy as a privileged locus of access to God. Faith in Christ replaces birth into a people. It doesn't matter what lineage you were born into. It doesn't matter what your heritage was. If you come to faith in Christ, welcome to the family. And it's a big family. It spans all of the nations of the world that inhabit this new city. He goes on to say, as a consequence, all peoples can have access to the one God of Abraham and Sarah on equal terms, none by right, all by grace. That's what God gives to the world. What are the personal implications of this? Well, Paul goes on to talk even about those things in verses 28 through 30. What does it mean? But basically it means this. If you hold to principles that matter to you and those very principles subvert, or it says here in this context, they actually um, persecute those people who have been born from above or God wants to burn from, born, be born from above. If you hold to principles that subvert access to the gospel by people God intends, to belong to himself, you're no different than the Jews. You're no different than Ishmael who subverted the free one, Isaac. So let's live in a world where we make sure that the principle that we present to the world is there's a God of grace that has saved me only by his grace and gives it to anybody who wants his grace. The thing that's extraordinary about this is even in the midst of this 
allegory that Paul is talking about. We are seeing God do, dispense His grace around the world and people responding. And so, Jamie, I wonder if you'd be able to come up right now and share with us some of the things that you've discovered in your ministry. Many of you know Jamie. Jamie has been supported by Hillcrest and by a number of other people that are part of this church. And it's just been a thrill to be involved in their ministry. Jamie and his wife Ashley grew up in Kansas City area. There's a picture of Ashley and his three kids. Jamie, what are the names of your kids? Uh, okay, Asia's the oldest. Asia, her name is? Yeah, she's 11. And uh -huh. she's tired this morning, I think, because she probably stayed up all night at a birthday party. Yeah, so, so she's sleeping right back yeah, there while I'm talking, she'll, right? She'll, she'll sleep through this probably. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And, and then this Judah? is Judah. Judah's eight. Uh, and then River is our new addition. She's about a year and a half. Can you tell us why you, some of the story behind you naming your kids, what you did? Yeah, sure. Um, the three uh, names are, are all prayers. Uh, we were living in Tajikistan when Asia was born. So her name is Asia Grace. And so it was very straightforward, just praying that God would pour out his grace on the people of Tajikistan and Asia. Um, and, then, and, and so some of the people from Tajikistan would ask, why oh did yeah. you name her? Because in Muslim culture, names are usually chosen because of their significance and their meaning, rather than just it sounds nice, like we t tend to do. And so we kind of knew that going in, so we thought, well, if we had evangelistic opportunities worked into questions that we anticipated that they would ask, that would be good. Hmm. So um, Judah, is his middle name is Umed. Uh, Umed in Tajik means hope. That's actually the word for hope also in Turkish and Farsi. So, you know, it translates well in that region. And the, the idea there, of course, our hope comes from the line of Judah. And so we had an opportunity there. And then River is uh, praise. And that her name comes from the last chapter of Revelation where the, the throne of God is there and there's a river coming from the throne. And so the whole thing is worship. Mm -hmm. and, you know, God is being glorified. That's really cool. So tell us, what, what, what were your thoughts about uh, what we talked about this morning in regards to what Paul said? Yeah, um, that's the key is the gospel and a right understanding of it. And I, I think it, it struck me that, uh, you know, so many things to us are impossibilities. It's impossible that somebody like me growing up in Kansas City mm -hmm. would care about the Tajik people. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible that you would enter into caring about what happens to Muslims and that they come to know the Lord. Uh, these things seem impossible to us, but the power of the gospel is such that if we can avoid the trap of starting to think that this is some form of legalism, that we're more deserving of the gospel than X person or group of people, that somehow we deserve the gospel and Muslims do not, if we can avoid that trap, and stay true to what the gospel is, that it is, it is me who's undeserving, that'll propel us out. Mm. And so tell us, what do you see God doing in the Arab, Muslim, Persian world right now? Yeah, um, uh, just to give you some context, historically, uh, Islam started uh, in the early 600s, and really for the first thousand years of Islam's history, as they, as it interacted as a civilization with Christianity, um, there was only, I think it was after 300 years that the first movement of Muslims coming to Christ and um, as, as a group of at least a thousand uh, occurred. And so if you can define what a movement would look like, that'd be at least a thousand people going from Islam 
to Christianity. And so for the first 300 years of Islam, that never occurred. And then it was just a, a few isolated events in history where, you know, in like uh, close to the year 1000, about 12,000 uh, Arabs became Christians and were baptized that had political implications as well as why that happened historically. So it was really not until modern times, and we're talking about over a thousand years of history um, where basically nothing was occurring. Mm. And some of that was the church, the European church primarily, as they were um, expanding colonially into the world. They were much more interested in uh, what would happen um, with their wealth and with the, the spread of, of their physical kingdom than they were about God's kingdom. And so they, when they, when they interacted with certain peoples, they would share the gospel, like the, the Jesuits did that in you know, South America, and we know some of those stories. But in general, when they, when they interacted with Muslims, they're like, no, no, this isn't going to work. Let's keep our mouths shut so that our business can do well. And I think, you know, to one degree or another, that's still our main issue, is that uh, we have divided loyalties between two kingdoms. Um, but, you know, fast forward to the year 2000, uh, they, they say that between the year 2000 and the present, so in these 15 years, um, there's been 69 movements of Muslims coming uh, from Islam to Christianity. And I would say in that 15-year period, we've seen more activity within the Muslim world coming and being responsive to Christianity than we have in the previous entire history. And that's including who we work with, and we work with uh, Persians. So we started, uh, uh, spent five years in Tajikistan. Well, first Sorry. of all, what you just said, that's breathtaking. Before, before we move on to anything else, I mean, did you just hear that? 69 various groups of 69 different movements. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It, yeah, and um, it's, it's God's sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, we don't, I don't know why, having worked with Muslims for the last 10 years, I don't know why God is, is choosing in his sovereignty to begin to act in a powerful way in our lifetime, but it's happening. Yeah. And we've gotten to experience that personally. We've uh, been working with Persians in particular. So Tajiks were fairly... Um, resistant to the gospel, though by the grace of God we were able to start a, a Tajik church in, a, in an area about an hour north of Afghanistan where as far as we knew there would never been a church before. Um, and so there are Tajiks that are they're worshiping God. Um, we use for the peoples that we work with, whether they be Tajiks, Afghans, or Iranians, because those are the three Persian-speaking peoples in the world, uh, we would say that they are um, unreached, meaning that they're less than 2% Christian, uh, Tajiks are 0.1% Christian, Afghans are 0.05% Christian, and Iranians, it's hard to measure because uh, there is a movement, one of these movements that we mentioned, uh, is going on within the Iranian people right now. I would say that they're, in my ex personal experience, more receptive to the gospel than Americans. Hmm. Um, and uh, Say that again. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, some of our, yeah, it's, it is amazing that, uh, that they are so receptive. Um, and it's hard to measure 
how many Iranians have come to Christ, but conservatively, it's it's three to four hundred thousand, mm. uh, primarily within the uh, the nation of Iran. We work with the diaspora communities that have come out. Um, in the last few years, we were in, in Istanbul, but um, but maybe even closer to a million, mm. and like. I've tried to paint a, a very brief, quick picture that this has never happened before. Um, and, and we're hoping that the Iranians, because we know in our work that it is going to be them, it's going to be the local uh, communities that are coming to Christ that are going to be have the organic um, uh, nature that it's necessary in order for them to reach the people around them with the gospel, including the Afghans and the Tajiks. We continue to reach out and, um, and try to start churches in these places, but for there to really be the, the movements and the power that needs to happen that we pray for, that's gonna be primarily them, so we work with them. So Jamie, all, we're hearing stories of all of these Christians in the Middle East that are persecuted and some being killed. So it just, how is that mesh with what you just said? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, of course, in our modern world, which, you know, hasn't, existed too long that we are able to know as it happens what's going on in the entire world. Muslims, of course, get to experience that too. And sometimes that turns them off to what they've considered to be uh, Islam. And, and so there's opportunities and I think maybe that's even accelerating the process. So persecution, uh, you know, for example, uh, we worked with a lot of displaced Iranian pastors who were, you know, pastors of maybe just five or six believers inside of their home in Iran, and some of them spent time in prison, usually in our, our church that we started the last five years in Istanbul with primarily Iranians and a smattering of Afghans. Uh, five or six of them on a typical Sunday would have been in prison in Iran for their faith, and so I'd ask one of the pastors, um, I remember it was a memorable conversation. I asked him, how can we pray for you as a nation and, uh, you know, the Iranian people? And he said, just pray that everything would go on as it has. Because for the Iranian story in particular, it really started in 1979. We know people that are quite uh, uh, old now that spent decades in Iran before the 1979 revolution, when there was relative freedom and peace uh, under the Shah, the king of Iran. And they didn't see much receptivity. And then the persecution started in 1979. And in the, these 30 years, it went from almost zero Iranians that were Christian to now it's still less than 1%. But it is an incredible, unprecedented boom in that country. And he attributed it, attributes their spiritual receptivity and the, um, the shedding of the scales over their eyes with uh, the persecution. I'm not comfortable praying for that to but that's continue, what he was but asking. that's what he was asking, he was asking us pray, to do. Pray that we continue yes, to be persecuted. Praise God that we're persecuted. We finally woke up. That was his, that was his, uh, you know, his attitude about the wow. situation. Wow. Yeah. So tell us about the impact of social media in the gospel moving forward. Yeah, that's a, that's a factor. I mean, in Tajikistan, we were among the, the target group. Of course, Turkey is also Muslim, and Turks are very resistant to the gospel as well. But for us personally, in the last few years in Istanbul, uh, we, we worked with diaspora communities, the displaced communities, the Iranians and the Afghans, because we could speak their language since we had learned Tajik. Um, so we, as we were working with them, I started to see that 
just because they're geographically distant from their people, they're still in touch with them uh, almost every day. Uh, they tend to talk to their mom a lot more than I do, which they're good like that. But, you know, they're connected uh, via Skype and Facebook and all of these things, and it's almost on a daily basis, and it's such an opportunity. And sometimes we would see people that were evangelistically inclined, um, even as young believers, they would use Facebook as an advertisement. Even Iranians that had their family still in Iran and, you know, difficult, complicated situations, so bold. Like, they'd put the cross as their Facebook profile. They'd put, you know, uh, Facebook as adapted to Farsi fine, and so they, you know, put all of the graphics with the sunset and John 3.16, and, you know, they, that's, that's their posts and they're leading their family members to Christ. And there was a guy in our church that used Skype to do the same thing. He had a group of 10 Iranians in Iran, uh, five or six in Turkey the night that I sat in with them, uh, five or six in, in Turkey as refugees. They put them in about 30 different cities, the Iranian refugees in Turkey. And then um, also throughout Europe, there was a few. And uh, so he has a two day a week. You know, everybody signs in together at seven and they study the book of Genesis together, and he's mm -hmm. talking about, you know, the shadows of the gospel mm -hmm. and sacrifice, things that Muslims really understand, because they still do animal sacrifice on a yearly basis. We don't, mm -hmm. but they do, mm -hmm. and so they can talk about these things and how they lead to the gospel, and it was amazing mm -hmm. how they were using that sort of stuff to continue to share it all over the world. Yeah. I think some of the things that you're sharing with us are surprises to us, actually. You know, we have this read on what's going on and concerns about uh, what we see. What, what makes you cringe when you hear us as Christians, you know, saying things or characterizing or our attitude? When, tell, us, tell us what we do that we probably should think about more carefully. I guess I've had to think about this more because uh, my health hasn't been good, so we're actually moving to Los Angeles to work with Persians because Muslims are everywhere in our society now, so the question is very important. They're all over Kansas City as well, but for us in particular, there's about 800,000 people of Persian descent that are living in Los Angeles, mm. and so we're, we're headed there. Um, to continue working with them and planting churches and mobilizing and doing whatever we can to see God's kingdom come among the Persian people. Um, but, you know, because not just California and New York, but all across our country, uh, we are engaged with Muslim co-workers increasingly, um, with, you know, kids on our kids' teams that are from Muslim backgrounds. And so the question is important. And I, I think for me... Um, I'm excited to try to work th with the church, the church in general. I kind of jump from church to church because of our, the nature of our work. Um, about fear, uh, you know, fear is always uh, inappropriate for Christians. You know, we know the end of the story. Mm. We know that eventually there's going to be uh, people from every single ethnic group and language worshiping before God. And so we don't have anything to fear. Mm. It might get a little difficult in our immediate situation, but we know the big picture, and there's nothing to fear at all. Um, and so we don't have to even be nervous, I think, about protecting our society 
Um, because that's in God's hands, and I think our, our first loyalty as Christians has to be to God's kingdom and proclaiming that rather than policing our own. Um, and so as Christians, and of course, there's going to be lots of people that want to police our own society, um, but I think we need to be radical um, agents. We think that Muslims are radical, and I think that's, what, that's why we have fear, but it's really Christians that are radical. I mean, it is very normal human behavior to react in fear and violence, and these are things that you see all across the Muslim world, and it's what they operate on. Um, you and, mean speak, being radical in terms of love and compassion? Exactly, and, and exactly. Yeah. Like the idea of um, John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing uh, his disciples' feet. And then you go to the second half after he's done that of John chapter 13, and you realize as you starting to indicate that Judas is going to betray him, that Judas was present. And so we're called to such a radical love that even hours before a particular person, Judas, would betray us to the point of death, we're still called to love. And so we're supposed to love the 3% that are very radical. Um, but, you know, I... I I think part of our role is to educate too that the majority of Muslims, probably 97 or more percent um, in the 1.5 billion that live in our world, um, all of whom basically are, are unreached, that's less than 2% Christian, our, our goal is, is to love like that, is to wash their feet. You know, I, I mean, symbolically, yes, but maybe even literally, to wash their feet. Uh, that's supposed to be the attitude of Christians. And as, work, as someone who's worked and lived among Muslims the last 10 years, uh, that's difficult. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the process of our own discipleship, God is very interested in that. Mm. And, and that's a joy. Service draws you further into examining the inappropriate attitudes that you have in your own discipleship. And I've gotten the joy, I guess, of, of getting to see all the ugliness in myself. Hmm. The joy of seeing the ugliness in yourself. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? <laughs> it is true. You know, you've talked about how we can interact with these people that God cares about. And it doesn't sound like I need to know Arabic. It doesn't seem like I need to have a great deal of acquaintance with apologetics. It sounds like I can do something as simple as being a person of compassion. Yeah. I was at a conference where we were talking about the state of things, and, and one of the goals of this conference, it was a conference of all groups, basically, that are, are right now engaged working with Muslims and trying to get more to happen among Muslims, and there's so many in our society. I mean, we're talking in the millions in, in Europe and in the United States, and that's just going to increase because they like children, first of all. Mm -hmm. You know, in Europe, that's question mark. Um, but Muslims have babies. And, and so we'll have an increasing opportunity to share the gospel. And one of the, one of the opportunities or one of the goals of this conference was uh, to try to mobilize one million new people that would engage with Muslims. Um, and I don't think it's going to be all... I, I know there's going to be very few, like uh, our family that has the blessing and the support of places like Hillcrest... Uh, that will have the time and energy to learn their language, become fluent so we can share the gospel there. But that's not important when they're among us. They just need somebody to come into their lives uh, with the posture of a learner. They assume that you don't know anything about them. 
and um, they'll be tickled. Like we've met Muslims in, in our country that have sometimes lived here five, six, seven, eight, ten years, and have and in the conversation that they're having with Ashley and I was their first uh, mm. true conversation outside of business relationship. Like how much does that cost? And they're like, why are you interested in our culture? And and uh, you can take that slow, but just to cultivate like any relationship, just a friendship. And we have that opportunity. Yeah, Jamie, thank you so much for Absolutely. sharing with us this Absolutely. morning. We're just so grateful. Thank you. What a remarkable gift that God has given uh, to us that we have people among us that um, remind us of God's care for the world and demonstrate it in such a really great, passionate and gentle way too. You know, do you remember uh, Beth was speaking a couple of weeks ago and she was telling the story of Peter and the disciples getting this, uh, you know, boatloads of fish. And just, an un it was an impossible thing. It would have been out of the bounds of what's natural. And yet they just have these boatloads of fish. And what happens for Peter and his disciples? They get down on their knees and they worship the Lord. I actually believe that God intends for those two things to be connected with each other. That we get ourselves in a situation that um, seem impossible and God shows up and does somebody that no one would imagine that can only be measured by the reality of a God who is supernatural. And then we worship because we've seen God do something that none of us would have ever conceived of along the way. God wants worship for us. And the privilege that we have of being able to show compassion to people whom God loves and cares about and then discover that what God is building inside of us is compassion for people that we never would have imagined the possibility of. That God wants to do that for all of us. I would just encourage you as we wrap up now and the team's going to come up and saying, ask this question, God, what specifically does this mean for me this week? Maybe my business environment. There may be some kids from the Middle East in your school and you can host them at your house. Or we can just show and live out the love of Christ and his amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us the opportunity to be able to display your compassion as we live out a life that is filled with freedom in order that others might experience that same freedom as well, we pray in Jesus' name.